Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. I invite you to get your Bibles out to Genesis chapter 12. We will be on the back half of Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, and our time in the Word together this morning. Got a lot of work to do, so I want to jump right into it. Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, they dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But... The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So this biblical narrative of redemptive history, Jim brought it up last week, but this this narrative of redemptive history, it's not something that we merely want to look at, to but to just something to consider and something just to, to, to look at the details of it, and isn't it interesting? But instead, this narrative, this redemptive history, it is to be something through which we look at the whole world. Not something we just look at, but something we look through to see the whole world. A book I was reading this week by Leslie Newbegin, Gospel in a Pluralist Society, it says the Christian story provides us with such a set of lenses This Christian story, not something for us to look at, but for us to look through. When we look at the story of who God is and what he has done in the world and what he has promised yet to do, we should not look at it merely as like a a side dish to life or an interesting contemplation on a, a certain narrative, but as the very foundation upon which life is grounded upon. It is not meant to be merely looked at, but looked through to help us understand life, ourselves, and most importantly, to help us understand who God is and and, and who who God is and, and what He has done. Our culture today 
it really struggles with the authority of something like the biblical narrative. We like to read most stories and affirm some life principles from them. And then if, we, if it appeals to us, if we think, oh, that, that sounds like a good idea, let me integrate that into the life that I'm already living and I'll piecemeal together some sort of idea about who God is or who the higher power is and what my life should look like and what should be next. And we, we piece together all of these idea. that is ideas. That, that is not how the biblical narrative works. It's not how scripture is meant to work. It is truth with a capital T. It is truth with a capital T. Preface in another book I was reading mentions this, and long quote here, but the grand narrative of Christian redemption is being replaced by thousands of smaller personal narratives driven by human autonomy market-driven consumer preferences, and a growing narcissistic distrust of the very notion of revelation. Truth, with a capital T, has been quietly traded in for a much smaller view of the truth. Truth as personal preference, that is, what works for me. But the revelation of God in Scripture has, has gradually come to be seen as nothing more than the projection of human hopes and fears, an extension of anthropology, not as theology. That this book is not just telling us something interesting about humanity, like, oh, this is, this is what people thousands of years ago, this is how they believe, this is how they lived life. And isn't that interesting? That's not what Scripture is doing. It is giving to us the truth, capital T truth, about who God is, how he works in the world, and what we should do and how we should live in response to that. And so then we come to this narrative regarding Abraham. This is not just a story about some man. We ought not to read scripture in that way. This is telling us something very specific and very important about God. <laughs> This is telling us some, the main character of this book is God. And when you read scripture, yes, it's involved with all sorts of different individuals, but it is telling us something incredible about God. He is the main character of scripture. And we see him working throughout history with various, through various means and through various individuals for the ultimate goods of his glory and the, his people's blessing. And so this narrative, when seen correctly, it ought to reframe the way we see everything in our world today, especially today when our, our natural framing of the world is centered around self and self-fulfillment and self-achievement. There is a bigger story going on. There's a bigger narrative than one that is just focused around us. So we don't want to fly too quickly. Last week, Jim, uh, Jim brings up preaches through this passage that is absolutely monumental in the, in the narrative of redemptive history. It's an incredible turn in the story of God with his people. And we get lulled to sleep almost because of, of our cultural like status and the, the way that life is lived. You know, we, we do live, uh, lean upon roots of Christianity without even really realizing it. The ideas of mercy and compassion and grace are very particular, very important Christian concepts that we kind of just get lulled to sleep with. We almost expect them to happen in our world today. We profit from a society 
that has an incredible amount of influence from the convictions of Christianity. But this turn in chapter 12 in Genesis, it really isn't what you should expect. I mean, remember what's happened. God made all this beautiful, this beautiful world, and then mankind rebelled, and it was promised that once they did, they would die, and God extends mercy. Spiritually, yes, we know that death does happen there, and eventually physical death will happen, but God gives mercy. But then Cain and Abel, right? And then we see God extends mercy there. But then we've got the flood where mankind and his sin and rebellion and persisting in sin and rebellion, God wipes out the world except for Noah and his family. And so there's this real interesting, like God is, that God would look at a person in Ur of Chaldees and, and, and place his mercy and grace upon him that is astonishing that God is continuing to, to move after this goal of redeeming a people for his own glory. This, is, this chapter 12, verse 3 is a huge turn that I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, who becomes later Abraham, so don't get confused with Abram and Abraham. It's the same guy. His name gets changed. I will bless in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's as, it's, it's a, as critical of a turning point as Genesis 3.15. Remember, we talk, I've talked a lot about that as we've preached through Genesis. There in the curse of the serpent, he is told that the seed of the woman will crush your head and you will bruise his heel, or the bruise your head, you'll bruise his heel, same word there. But that is this first gospel, right? Of there's a promised one coming who's going to defeat the enemy who will be wounded in the process, but will save, the, he will be this, this, this coming savior, this seed of the woman. And so this is why we def defined redemptive history last week as redemptive history is the comprehensive acts of God to redeem a people and all creation back to himself. Redemptive history, the comprehensive acts of God to redeem a people. And I, well, I, I'm of God. Why am I saying that? I just got myself. Like, but why am I saying with that emphasis? Because it is God's action to save a people for himself. He is the one doing the work here. Abram does not merit God's favor, does not merit God's attention, but the redemptive history is the comprehensive acts of God to save a people for himself, to redeem a people, and eventually all creation back to himself. So we see this kicked off with renewed particularity in the life of Abraham. Very important turn in, in the narrative of biblical Redemptive history. So then we get into this week's passage because now, all right, we've got our man. Abram shows up. He's, he's, he leaves his home country. He goes to Canaan. We've got our hero, right? That's what you would think. We've been looking for the promised seed. Maybe, I mean, this, this is repeated throughout the Old Testament. Maybe this is the one we've been waiting for. Maybe he's going to crush the serpent's head by being bruised in the heel. Maybe this is the one. And then it takes all of 10 verses, right, to find out this surely is not the one. This is surely not the Savior. This guy uh, is not, doesn't have it together. The first thing that we see uh, as we get into this text, this, 
this reality, it becomes clear with Abraham that though he is remembered and honored as the father of the faith, he is not the righteous hero of the story. He's not the righteous hero of the story. We're still looking for the righteous hero, and that becomes clear in this passage. But as we look at this, just getting back into verses 10 through 20, a point that I want to throw out there that we not forget, um, because of our postmodern, post-enlightenment world, um, what we see is that we do not live in a closed system. Um, like this idea that, you know, okay, so God started the world six days, he made it, even if we grant that. But he kind of just, now it's kind of up to us. And we've got to toe the line, whatever, make things happen. And, and it's, it's a closed system. For many people, the worldview today is one of a closed system. God may be there, but he's not really all that involved. The biblical narrative, it does not allow for that at all. We do not live in a closed system. God is actively engaged personally and intimately in the saving of his people. And we see that in this text, right? That this is not a closed system that we live in. God is still active in the world that he has made. And we have interesting things like providence that will come up later on in the book of Genesis, the God's weaving of circumstances. But it is absolutely his will and his power to work things according to his purpose. We do not live in a, closed sense, in a closed system, but God is involved. And we see that, I think, with the famine in the land. Now, that could mean we, we like to attribute these things to natural causes, but you can look, as we read through the rest of our scripture, we'll see many times that famine actually is in the hands of God and that both blessing and cursing is in the hands of God. And this famine comes upon the land of Canaan, and, and because of this, Abram takes his family down into Egypt. But, you know, it's only a few chapters later where, you know, in, in later in the book, Exodus 9, where God is actually in charge of all sorts of plagues and afflictions that come upon the Egyptians, that God is in charge of all of these things. Passages like Psalm 105, verse 16, and Jeremiah 24, 10, they make it clear that famine is within the hands of God's ability to bring it about. So it, it seems important to me to notice this and to make note of it because our inclination today is to live like we are in a closed system. And we are not. We are not. When we read God's word, we learn this. We do not live in a closed system. God is able, willing, and exact to work in his creation to bring about his purposes. They might remain a mystery to us <laughs> much of the time, but... We do not live in a closed system. God is able, willing, and exact to work in his creation, to bring about his purposes. As God begins then this involvement with Abraham and establishes his covenant people, it's good for us to see that God is not some impersonal creator or some force who exists on some totally unrelated plane. He is establishing an intimate personal connection with his people and in their lives. You know, and maybe at that point, Maybe that point on its own is something good for us to remember and think about today. There is no circumstance that is too far away for God to get involved in. There's no situation, there is no place that you may be that God is unable to enter into 
and to meet you where you are, to work for your good, to bring about whatever it may be for your ultimate blessing. We, God is a God who is active in his world and for his people. There is no distance too far for him to reach. No matter how alone you may feel, no matter how distant God may feel from you, no matter how improbable your circumstances may seem today, God's ear is not deaf and his arm is not too short to work his purposes for his own glory and for the good of his people. That's good news for the people of God, that I can make my appeals to a father who is not, well, I wish I could still be involved. No, he actually is, and he's, he's able to. His arm is not too short to help. So this famine then, it forces Abram to leave the promised land, and he sojourns down in Egypt for food for his family. Some commentators, Jim and I talked about this uh, this week, you know, some commentators will make a much about, uh, it, was it sinful for Abram to go to Egypt? Some people will make a lot of that, that reality as maybe a lack of faith because he doesn't trust God to take care of him in the promised land, so he leaves. Others that I've read don't see it as necessarily sinning in this escape to Egypt. And I fall more in line with them. I, I think, to me, I understand Abram trying to take care of his family, and there's no food here. Let's go somewhere where there is food. But I, you know, I also know that it's a good thing to contemplate. I think we also are far too easily excusing our decisions, rationalizing what we want to do because we think it's what we, because what we want to do. And so we, we easily justify the things we maybe ought not to do by finding some way to say, oh, this makes sense. And so I, I want to just throw that out there, that it isn't terrible to think about what, what is the motivation behind why we do what we do. But anyway, it is certainly dishonest and a lack of faith when Abram lies about his wife, Sarah. He has these promises, right? Could be made a great nation. He has a wife. Yeah, they're getting, they're getting on in age, but God has promised land and blessing and nations coming from him. And yet, to go down into Egypt, because his wife is beautiful, what does he say? Uh, tell them that you're my sister. I don't want them to know because I'm afraid that they might, might kill me to have you. Well, Abram has the promises that he, a, a nation, blessings of nations are going to come from him. And yet he is doubtful, even though he's this man of faith, <laughs> he is doubting that God's promises to him are true after the fact. And so he, he has to lie to protect himself because he's afraid God's promises may not come true. So this is certainly dishonest and a lack of faith. He convinces her to say she's his sister, not his wife. Now, this is, make note of this. This is not the only time we'll see this in Genesis, right? This happens two more times, unbelievably. <laughs> in Genesis 20, Abram lies again about Sarah. And there we learn that she actually is his half-sister. Um, so he's like, he justifies his lie. He's like, oh, this makes sense to say this. I can justify it. And then Isaac, uh, his son, lies about Rebekah later on in Genesis 26. So it's a family-like kind of thing. We'll, we'll, we'll revisit this many times throughout the narrative of Genesis. But what we learn here is that though we are people of faith, we are not free from failure. We are not free from failure. And honestly, as I write, as I think about that, I might, I might be taking the hard edge off of that a little bit by calling it failure. Though we are people of faith, um, we are not free from sin and rebellion. 
that we still wrestle with this old man, that uh, you know, it needs to be drowned daily, is the way that Lutherans would talk about it, that Martin Luther would talk about your sins need drowned daily to be put to death because we still wrestle with this old man that though we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, yet there is still this wrestle. Maybe the escape to Egypt is part of Abram's wrestle, but certainly his line about Sarah, it is unbelief in the promise of God. And this is where the characterization of Christians as those who think they are better than others is really frustrating. It's, it's very frustrating. <laughs> It's frustrating because sometimes, well, one reason why it's frustrating is because I, I think people might be accurately diagnosing some people who call themselves Christians that do think they're better than other people. Like, I guess, so on that front, they might be saying something that has a kernel of truth in it. But if there are people who are claiming the name of Christ who think they are so because they're better than other people, that might be true. But secondarily, it's frustrating because anyone who has truly come to Christ and repentance and faith they know that the problem is not those out there alone. The problem is all of us. <laughs> there is no classification of good people and bad, no distinction of good people and bad people. Scripture tells us there's just one kind of people and they're all sinful. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, right? And so this is the reality that we live with. There aren't good people and bad people. There are only sinful people. And the distinction is between those who have been humbled by that reality and are looking outside of themselves for someone to save them, looking to Christ. There's those who have been humbled by that. And then there are those who are proud who say, uh, I'm going I'm to achieve for myself anyway. Those who are in their own pride seek to conquer and win their righteousness by their own strength. The consistent witness from Scripture is that the people of God while in the process of being made perfect, ultimately in the redemption of Christ, they'll be finalized on the great and final day. They are not perfect yet. Um, we're not the heroes of the story. You're not the hero of your own story even, which is popular today to try to, to pump ourselves up that you know, you've got to be the hero, write your own story, follow your own arrow. You've got to be the hero of your own narrative. Um, that there, there is one perfect hero, and it's none of us in this room. It's none of us here. There is one rescuer, and it isn't yourself. It is God himself. It is Christ himself. So Abraham's, Abram's unbelief, it leads to unintended consequences, and sin often does. You think, I'm going to give sin just this much, and this is the result it's going to produce, and then it'll be done and over with. And it goes much farther than Abram ever attends. He just thinks he's going, to stay, he's going to stay alive. He doesn't realize that that sin is going to lead to the actual taking away of his wife into the Pharaoh's harem to become his wife. He has no idea that once that march down, this, this, this one little lie, this one little sin, and the way that sin just amplifies and grows and gets bigger, this is exactly what happens into, in, in Abram's life. As a trade, almost like a dowry, a marriage dowry, Abram is then to heap shame upon his lie. Pharaoh gives Abram all this material blessing. It's like, it's kind of wild. Like, think of if you're in his position, you're already feeling shame because you've lied and didn't stand up for your wife. And then she gets taken away. And then to heap shame, this powerful man just throws 
uh, horses and camels and riches and slave men servants and, and women servants and camels at you so that you're, you're sitting over here in this abundant prosperity while your wife's been taken away. Pharaoh gives Abram many riches, wealth that even after the event is over, we read at the end, right? He is sent away with all that he has. So there's this incredible blessing that is given to Abram, all these wealth, all this wealth, all these riches. And the process, though, then of getting it back requires the intervention of God. God, again, has to show up and be the hero, be the rescuer of the story. And he afflicts Pharaoh's house with affliction and with plagues. And Pharaoh, somehow, he gets it. <laughs> he understands this is Sarah that's causing the problems. This is this, this woman that I've taken in to be my wife. This is the problem. So Pharaoh, the unbeliever, being more righteous than Abram, like, work that one out in your head. That, yeah, you, there, are, there are people who do many good deeds out in the world apart from knowledge of Christ. And Pharaoh, here's this example of an unbeliever who's going to be more righteous than Father Abraham. I mean, that's, that's kind of wild to think about. And he calls him up and he says, why have you done this? You know, and, and gives Sarah back his wife. It's possible that Pharaoh is just afraid because of the afflictions and the plagues, he's, he's afraid to take the riches back for himself because he doesn't really get to keep Sarah as his wife. Maybe. We don't really know the reason why, but Abram then is sent away with all this abundant prosperity. He's escaped from Canaan due to famine with his family and then is expounded in blessing through his sinfulness and then sent away with the blessings that he got there uh, in, in Egypt. We see it here at the heart of this that the failure of man cannot ultimately thwart the purposes of God. I just like the word thwart. I don't know. They cannot stop. I think it's a more fun word to say than stop. Sorry. The failure of man cannot ultimately thwart the purposes of God. It really is astonishing to think about all that really could have gone wrong at this moment um, and, and all that was willfully plunged into by Abram himself, all the ways that he's running away from and doubting God, and yet in the midst of his sinful rebellion, God uses that to actually fulfill his purposes for Abraham's good. That is wild. <laughs> That is wild to think about a God who is so committed to saving his people that as far as they run into sin, he's, his arm is not too short to ultimately rescue them and bring them back to himself. Now, that is not permission. That is not saying to ourselves, oh, that's good to know, Darren. Thank you. Let me now go march off and sin as greatly as I can and see if God can reach me. No, that's not the idea. But there is, there is something astonishing in this reality. What what seems to, to Abram to be the very threatening of promise, right? There's famine in the land. There's this loss of his wife. He's plunging. He's walking away from his faith in God. God actually uses it to partially fulfill this promise to give him blessing and land. He uses his own disobedience to move him closer to God himself. It's incredible. So furthermore, we learn that even the sinfulness of man will be used by God for his glory and the ultimate good of his people, even when the sins are their own. Because what we see here, Abraham, Abram, whatever you want to call him, Abram doesn't get the glory here. God does. 
God gets the glory. Abram messed up. He, he walked away. He was in unbelief. Ultimately trusting the promises of God, we know that, but then falling into unbelief, yet God uses that for his glory and for the ultimate good of his people. Sin is wickedness. It is rebellion against God. And all those who are God's people ought to seek with all of their energy they have to put sin to death. Mortify the, the, the sins of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. Put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8 tells us, right? That is the call of a Christian, that you've been raised to newness of life. You're a new creation. Put to death the deeds of the body. And yet, God is so powerful, so omniscient, so, um, so all-knowing, so committed to his people that he takes even the sins of his people, even the times that you've turned, he takes those and he works his good purposes for his glory and the good of his people through them. It is astonishing. A few thousand years later, God is going to take incredible sinfulness the murder of a truly righteous man. Jesus did no wrong. Even those who would want to crucify him had no accusation against him. They had to admit this man is a right. He didn't really do anything wrong. They, they trumped up lies about him. But Christ had done nothing wrong. There is nothing more wicked than the execution of a truly righteous man. The greatest sin of all, in some sense, is committed there that Good Friday when Jesus is murdered by his own people. <laughs> what incredible sin being committed. And yet, what do we see? It is through the sinfulness of those people that God works their ultimate good so that we who sit here today, God and his sovereignty through this giant sin against him is so committed to the saving of his people and for their good that he takes even that sinfulness and he works it for his glory and for their good. Saving those, those very same people. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Uh, the high priest says it is fitting that one should die for the many prophesying Caiaphas there is exactly what happens. Christ goes to the cross, sin done to him so that every one of us in this room this morning confessing our sins, looking to Christ and his righteousness could be forgiven of our transgression, adopted into God's family, justified and made righteous with him. Though we have run away a thousand times, we can turn and look to Christ and be brought into God's family this is good news. Now, again, this does not excuse sin. It is still serious and will be dealt with appropriately. But do you see what solid ground those who are God's stand upon? If you are His by faith in Christ, if you've turned from your sins and you are, I appeal to you, if you have never turned from your sin and trusted Christ, Today is the day of salvation. Hear the call. Trust Christ. Be saved. And then if you are a child of God, through faith in this promise of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, then no purpose counter to God's good plan for you as his child can win. His good purposes will be accomplished for you, not even your own moments of failure and sinfulness. 
It's good news that no matter how far off you may find yourself today, it is not too far for God to work His good purposes for you. So when we consider, when we consider the life of Abram, not just as a narrative to look at, right? That's where we started a while ago. Not just as a, as a narrative to look at, but something to look through at the rest of the world. The truth about the nature, when we consider this, not just as a narrative, but something to look at, a truth about the nature and character of God, it begins to color then the way we look at everything else in this world. Where are we resting our hope? It's often said these days, we already mentioned it, that the only person that you can really trust is yourself. And if by that you mean you can only trust yourself to fail yourself, then I would concur. <laughs> but that's about as far as I would go. Um, but the reality of the human condition in this fallen world is that those around us fail us and we fail ourselves. And sometimes egregiously sin against others and are sinned against and ultimately sin against God. The beauty of the narrative of Scripture is that it points us to God's greatness, not our own. Our hope, our confidence, our security, our peace lies not in us. It lies outside of us. And a God who loved us so much that He sent His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life, right? That is where our hope lies. What is left to us is the question, will we humble ourselves to the reality of our own rebellion if we will repent and will place our trust in one higher than ourselves, our God and the one true Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I just, I pray for eyes to see this. If there are any of us in, in this room this morning who do not, have not yet put their trust in you, I pray that even right now you would open eyes to see the good news of the gospel, that there is a Savior, that the penalty for sin was laid upon Christ on the cross so that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I pray that, Father, that we would see that that salvation is not just um, a little identity, identification card we carry in our wallet or something, but it is, it is a, a, a giving us a whole new lens through which to look at the world. That, Father, I don't rest... I don't, I don't rest in my own performance, God. I don't trust in my ability to somehow earn your smile. <laughs> but I rest my life in the hands of a sufficient Savior. And God, may that be the place that all of our hope, that all of our peace, all of our joy is grounded not in ourselves, but in Christ, in you and all that you have done for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.